Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5. As we continue through the New Testament, currently in the book of Galatians, and we'll be looking at verses 16 through 26. We did the first half last, uh, last Sunday. And the title this morning is The War Between the Flesh and the Spirit. The War Between the Flesh and the Spirit. And as I said in the prayer, if you take this lesson and you listen to it and you apply it to your life, I mean for reals, you be for reals with God, it will change your life, every area of your life. There's a huge difference that exists between the conduct of the spirit and the conduct of the flesh. And this difference speaks of the general behavior of the saved and the unsaved and the higher character of conduct from the gospel than by the law. Just like Isaac and Ishmael were unable to get along, one representing the flesh, one representing the spirit. It's the same with the spirit and the flesh, that is, with the old nature and the new nature. They're at war with each other. <clears throat> and by the flesh, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul doesn't mean the body. He's not talking about the body. Because the human body is not sinful in, its, in itself. It's neutral. If the Holy Spirit controls the body, then we walk in the Spirit. But if the flesh controls the body, then we walk in the lusts or the desires of the flesh. And the Spirit and the flesh have different desires or appetites. And this is what creates the conflict. This is where the battle is. Paul ended verse 15 uh, with this warning. He said, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Where love is lacking, there's going to be problems. Paul mentions these problems. And the text suggests that these problems were taking place where the legalists had been teaching their error of mixing law with grace. Now here in verse 16, Paul's going to give us the remedy. All Paul's letters deal with belief and behavior, with principles and practice. And Paul's letters continue a proper balance between faith and practice. He has now made a complete changeover in Galatians to the hands-on side of teaching. We are to be like Jesus. And I know if you know that. Or you think that, you know, hey, I'm to do my best, to do, be good, and, 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 and do what I can. No, we are to be like Jesus. That's the meat and the potatoes of, his, of Paul's practical teaching here. First, Paul shows us how God made it possible for the redeemed, that is the saved, to be like Jesus. And first, he gives us the command. Look at verse 16 now in chapter 5. Here's the command. Paul says, <clears throat> I say then... Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's a command. Paul did not suggest. Paul did not make an idea here. This isn't theory. He said, walk in the flesh, period. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is God's answer to your unruly flesh. Man in sin is not what God intended him to be. Man in sin is a deformity. It's the result of a devilish seed planted in his nature 
person and personality by the evil one. And the result of this seed is what the Bible calls the flesh. It's totally evil. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, 18, I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. It's totally beyond redemption. God will not bless this whole nature. He won't have anything to do with it. All he'll do with it is put it to death. That's why, that's why trying to keep God's law doesn't work. Paul says that the weakness of the law was the flesh. I may know what's right to do, but I do not have the power to fulfill that, to do it. Anything that we try to do on our part to keep God's law is sure to fail because man in sin can't do it. Paul said in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then Romans 8, 7, he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. God made man to be indwelt by him. The human spirit was to be the home of the Holy Spirit. The human spirit living in one accord with the indwelling Holy Spirit was to control the soul, mind, emotions, will, senses, activities, and needs of the body. When a man or woman is indwelt by God this way, they would show the world God manifest and magnified in a human body but once sin entered in the holy spirit departed and the flesh took over the flesh controls the mind the heart the will and the senses of man in sin that is before he or she is born again such a person is known in the bible as a natural man or natural woman he simply behaves according to whatever his flesh wants and back in the day before we got saved, man, whatever our, this flesh wanted, hey, I would go out and get it. Again, it was the appetites of the flesh. It's the picture of the natural man. And it's found in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. Everything he tried to do to please God is doomed to fail. And this shows that the Christian life means way more than just coming forward at an altar call. And even while under the conviction of the Holy Spirit... And the sudden change is genuine, and it's wonderful. You have to keep in mind that as a rule, a sinner is not wholly saved all at once. He is saved. He is going to heaven. But he's not, he's not completely saved in the sense, we, we, until we are out of these bodies, redemption is not completely fulfilled. As long as I'm here, I say I'll have to live with this body, this body that wants to do its own thing. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in to rule, to do God's thing. The person that gets saved doesn't jump into heaven right away in just one giant step. Quite the opposite. Paul said in Philippians 2.12, he has to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, I have my part to do in this salvation. God has his part to do. This takes time. It takes struggle, intense effort, and energy. He is his own, I am my, oast, my worst enemy. As Paul proves by continuing, so that these very things that you want to do, you're not doing. And it's an everyday battle between the will and the real. Paul, writing as a saved man, records his experience as a saved man in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. He complained bitterly 
about the fact that he does what his soul no longer enjoys doing. He says, I know, what's to, I, I know the right thing to do. I will to do the right thing. He says, but I end up doing that which is wrong. In fact, he does what he has as, as a born-again believer, hates. He does what he does as a born believer. He hates it. He cried out in Romans 7, 24. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. And the word wretched meant enduring toils and troubles. What, he said, wretched man that I am. Who, not what? That's the important thing to understand. He said, who will deliver me? Not what? Out of the body of this death. Nevertheless, he's also totally aware of the fact that in the struggle between his own flesh and God's spirit, the spirit would win. Would there have been this genuine, God-centered sorrow for sin if Paul wasn't really saved? You know, we don't sorrow for sin. We don't care about sin when we're not saved. We really don't even know what it means. But when we get saved and we sin, it, it, it grieves us. It causes us sorrow. We hate it. This very conflict is proof of Paul's salvation. He hates doing what he knows he shouldn't do. So we're not surprised when he said, oh, wretched man. That's what he, was, that's what he felt. He was the chief of sinners. He was a wretched man. He said, who will deliver me? And that's followed by his words, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. All false religion displays fallen man's total inability to know God in the flesh or to understand God's word. Jesus said in John 3, 6, 7, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now we are born into this world spiritually dead, cut off from God. We need to be born again of the Holy Spirit from above. You know, when that baby is born and you're holding that baby in your first time for your arms and you look at that baby and what a, it's the best baby is so beautiful and, and so sweet and so tender. And I remember Pastor Xavier following up with, yeah, he's a cute little sinner. <laughs> because he's got that seed born of the flesh. And we see that when, our, that when that cute little kid starts to become, what, about a year old? and, one, and a, No, mine. We're crying because it doesn't get his way. Already beginning to exhibit that sinful nature. So again, we're, we're, we're born spiritually dead, cut off from God. When a person receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, various miracles take place. He becomes cleansed by the blood of Christ. His body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit and brings back to life the human spirit inside. You know, when we're, when, before we're born again, we're, 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 we're uh, body, soul, and spirit. The body's ruling. The body's on top. The spirit's on the bottom. But when you get saved, that reverses. Or, and, and now it's spirit, soul, and body. Now the spirit's in charge. That happens though when you're born again. It it. It gets upside right. So every born-again believer has two natures. You have the old nature that you're born with, which is called the flesh or the old man, and this nature can't do anything right. They also have a new nature, which is the divine nature, the, 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 the new man, the, the, the nature created in him by the Holy Spirit. This nature is incapable of sin. That is, they are incapable of practicing sin. 
We don't practice sin when we're born again. It doesn't mean we don't sin, but we don't make a practice of sinning. And when we do, it grieves us. The two natures, and those two natures are at war with each other. Now that's the battle. The old man and the new man, they're at war with each other. Now, how do we, how do we, make, how do we get the one to win over the other? What do we do that the, that, the, that the new nature gets victory over the old? Well, that's when you spend time in the Word of God. You pray. You go to church and you learn and grow in the Word of God. You have fellowship. Or, and that's feeding the spiritual nature. But if you feed the, 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 man, the natural man, the flesh, like I don't read, I don't pray, I, I do worldly things, I do the things of the world, I do worldly, go to worldly places, and, and will that, if I'm feeding that nature, that's the one that's going to win. So whichever nature I feed is the one that's going to get the victory. And that's why it's important that I feed the spiritual man, that I feed him the word of God. That I, that, I, that, I, that I spend time in prayer and, and, and you know, in church fellowship with the body of Christ. I feed the nature, that nature, and that nature will have the victory over the flesh. So again, he has a new nature, a divine nature. The nature created in him by the Holy Spirit. And again, these two natures, like I said, they're at war with each other. They both want to rule as Paul demonstrated in Romans chapter 7. When a believer allows the old nature to have its way in his life, he's known as a carnal man. When he allows the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to have his way in his life, he's known as a spiritual man. The Holy Spirit's command is honest and to the point. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's either or, and you know what? It's totally up to you. You are the one that makes the choice to walk in the Spirit or to walk in the flesh. The possibility of living a holy life is now, is now ours. Because you see, it's a, because of the, the cleansing power of the blood of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in my body. Making ourselves available to Him every minute of our life in every situation and every choice. And Paul doesn't see this as an option. Walking in the Spirit, he doesn't see that as an option, but mandatory. Again, it was a command in verse 16 to walk in the Spirit. He didn't say, I suggest you do that, or it would be a good idea, or it would be the best for you, though it, well, it is. But he says, walk in the Spirit. Every minute of your life, in every situation, if, in every choice. It's the only way the Christian life can be lived. Otherwise, it's going to be an up and down journey and you're going to be miserable. One day you're rejoiced because you're walking in the Lord and the next day you're down in the dumps because you're not walking with the Lord because I'm not feeding the Spirit of the Lord. It's only the way the Christian life can be lived. It's the way Jesus lived. Jesus did what he did because of who he was. He was God manifest in the flesh. Jesus was never anything less than God. He was God. He was the creator of the universe. He's the second person of the Godhead. And he upholds, things, upholds all things by his word in heaven. He upholds all things by the word of his power in heaven. But 
Here's the thing. If he would have demonstrated his deity based on his attributes, all right, let's say if, if he demonstrated his life based on his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, those, those godly attributes, I mean, it would have been spectacular, it would have been awesome, it would have been frightening, but that wouldn't have been much help to us because we don't have those attributes. Well, yeah, it's easy for Jesus to, we would say it's easy for Jesus to like that. He's all-powerful, he's all-present, he's all-knowing. Hey, but I don't have that ability. So it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to live like that. I don't have those attributes. That's why Jesus came down and, and came here to live like man. And not like an ordinary man, and not as a fallen man, but as a man indwelt by God. So, he did what he did because of who he was. We can't see where his deity and humanity started or ended. We can't say, oh, now he's behaving like God and over, oh, now he's behaving like a man. We do that. One minute we're behaving like God, and another one we're behaving like man. Jesus was both God and man all the time. All the time and in every situation. He was always filled with the Holy Spirit. So it was every minute, in every situation, Jesus set before a lost world a living, breathing, visible demonstration of what God intended man to be. This is why Jesus is called the second man by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Adam was the first man, but he fell and he blew it. That's why the second man, Jesus Christ, came. All of man's problems stem from Adam. All of man's solutions to problems come from Jesus Christ. Adam blew it. Jesus never did. At one time, at one and the same time, Jesus showed the world what God was like. Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. When Jesus came, he was telling man, you want to know what God is like? You want to know what God looks like? Watch me. Watch me. Jesus demonstrated through his life what God intended man to be like. God is like Jesus. We're to be like Jesus, which is exactly what God intended Adam to be like. And now that we're born again and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the potential of being like Jesus is restored in us. And we are to make ourselves available to Him as He makes Himself available to us. And the key to all of this is obedience, availability, and a willingness to let God be God in us. The only things that hinder us from totally showing a lost world what God is like is our hereditary disobedience and self-will. The old man. The Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal. It's not just a goal. It's not just a mental image or a notion or imagination only, only but, but lacks practicality. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of what will happen to me when Jesus has changed my disposition and put in a disposition like his own. The Sermon on the Mount are not things that we do, they're things that we are. And all too often, we're just not around for God. We're too busy, too tired, 
we're not in tune with God, we resist and grieve the Holy Spirit. But then there's another limiting factor. Even when we are most available and most fully obedient, our bodies haven't yet been redeemed. But one day, we're going to be conformed to His glorious body. And Philippians 3.21 says, We shall, I'm sorry, 1 John 3.2, that we shall be like Him, or we shall see Him as He is. And then redemption will be complete, and we shall be like Him for all eternity. But until that day comes, Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, we are commanded to let the Holy Spirit, now living in us, have his way in our spirit and soul and body. And then all of his resources will be available to us, giving us victory, giving us power over the old nature and all of its sinful ways. The word walk, when Paul says walk in the Spirit, the word walk includes everything that we do, whether as lost sinners or as born-again believers. It refers to our outward life that all people around us can see. It can also be said, let your conduct be controlled by the Spirit. That's another way of interpreting the word here. Another way of putting it would be live your whole life in the Spirit. And built into the idea of walk is the idea of making progress. When you walk, you're making progress step by step. We walk one step at a time. Again, our progress, it might not be fast, but you know what? It should be steady. We might stumble and we might fall, but we get up, we seek cleansing, and we keep moving. And then comes the contrast, Paul says in verse 17. He said that here in, in verse 16, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust in the flesh. But here's the contrast in verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these, notes are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. This war has been going on for a long time. But thank God we're on the winning side as believers. Because all of God's infinite resources are available to us. And in our struggle with the flesh, the Holy Spirit is our special helper. He knows all the clever tricks of our flesh. He knows where the flesh is lurking. He knows when it's ready to attack. He knows how deceptive our flesh is. He knows the disguises that our flesh puts on. He knows the hopelessness and the wickedness of our flesh. And he knows the phony goodness of our flesh. The Holy Spirit is on our side. He's our helper against the devious enemy, the flesh. The Holy Spirit dwells in us where the battle is to be fought. We're not helpless in this battle, nor are we just the place where these two enemies fight. We are to walk in the Spirit, and that calls for a deliberate choice. And the question is, are you walking in the Spirit or in the flesh? We give in to either the flesh or the Spirit. And that's why Paul says you do not do the things that you wish. We must deny our natural desires. And we are to do the things that the Holy Spirit wants us to do. And that's the whole point and purpose of our human spirit being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Instead of giving in to the flesh, we're to give in to the desires of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the commitment. Notice verse 18. 
the commitment. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul wants to make it clear that living a holy life is not done by self-effort or by trying to keep the law. It's done by responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then, in verses 21, now comes one of those ugly lists in Paul's writings. Look at verses 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those, notice, who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Underline that verse. Make a note next to that verse. Those who practice these things will not. There's no doubt about it. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the Bible. This is what it's telling us. This isn't a list list of questionable things. Paul said, now these are evident. The sins listed here are evident, Paul says. That means that these sins, he says, if you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. They're openly evident and well-known evils. Now, to question whether these acts here are evils are evils is to ignore the obvious. Paul says they are. But there are people today who are trying to whitewash many of these evils in order to justify doing them and making them more acceptable. We're giving them new names today. Lust is now labeled a sexual addiction. Well, now I need to go to the doctor and I need therapy. And I need to... No, the Bible says it's lust. <laughs> It's a nature, it's a nature of the flesh. You know, alcohol, you know, drunkenness, now that's a disease. You know, know, the world is changing the names of these sins to make them more palatable, more acceptable. But Paul is saying to question these acts, uh, these evils, is to ignore the obvious. They are sins. And then we find out, you know, that, that the sins of the appetite... As Paul begins now to break it down, the sins of the appetite in verse 19 are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. These sins have to do with sexual appetite. Adultery and fornication are immoral appetites of the flesh, which are catered to today, as we know, as though it was, this, you know, it was the same as any legitimate appetite. Again, it, it, it's sexual uh, adultery and fornication. It's just like, hey, you know, it's, it's normal, like, like eating or drinking, and so it, it's no big deal to the world. But Scripture condemns this behavior. Uncleanness speaks of immoral vileness. It can include homosexuality and any lewdness in sexual conduct. The word lewdness here speaks of lack of constraint. I'm sorry, lack of restraint. It, it, it speaks of defiance and shamelessness in sinning it not only includes sex sins sex, uh, sexual sins but other sins where lack of restraint and shamelessness are displayed in the evil behavior and then paul talks about sins of adoration in verse 20 idolatry and sorcery sins of adoration these are sins of religion idolatry is the worship of an image and sorcery is the pursuit 
and reverence and respect for evil spirits and Satan instead of God. Then third, we have sins of the heart in verses 20 through 21 also. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, envies, outbursts of wrath. Hatred is unjustified hostility. Wrath is unjustified violent anger. And then in the fourth area here, we have uh, uh, action sins in verses 20 through 21. Contentions, selfish ambitions, dissensions, strife, seditions, heresies, murders, drunkenness, and revelries. Contentions and dissensions speak of the same behavior, that is, those who are hard to get along with. Dissensions. Dissensions are unjustified, rebellious behavior and divisiveness, like the kind that we see way too often in church. Heresies involve spreading unbiblical doctrine. Murders is not capital punishment, but the unjustified killing of another person. Drunkenness is also accepted today but strongly condemned in, in Scripture. Revelries are the wild, uncontrolled parties with drinking and many other sins involved. Paul said, to finalize these verses, he said, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear what Paul says. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because all of these things are the works of the flesh. And unless a person comes to Christ and has their sins forgiven and washed away in salvation, these sins of the flesh will send one to hell for eternity because wrong living will keep you out of God's kingdom. Wrong living will keep you out of God's kingdom unless a person comes to Christ and has their sins forgiven. They're not going to make it to heaven. These sins are very serious. And they must always be treated, must never be treated lightly. Because they condemn the person who practices them to an eternity in hell. And in contrast to the works of the flesh, there is the fruit of the Spirit. And the contrast is extremely great because the born-again man or woman will begin to hate the things they once loved. And they will begin to love the things that they once hated. You see, our heart has to beat as one with God's. We can't hate things that God loves, and we can't love things that God hates. Again, we must walk in the Spirit, behave in the Spirit, and again, we... we, 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 we it, when we become saved, we, those things that we used to like or, or love to do, we don't, we don't like that anymore. We don't do that anymore because it grieves God. It grieves God. And it doesn't help me in my walk with God at all. So again, these sins are very serious and they're not to be treated lightly. So, and then in verse uh, 22 through 23, we see now the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit. In verses 22 through 23, we see the inward fruit. Look at verses 22 through 23 now. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and, and of such there is no law. So again, in verse 22, you have the inward fruit, love, joy, and peace. These are the three inner attitudes that only the gospel can bring to a man. 
Love is agape love. This is the unconditional love. This is the love that loves no matter what. It do, this is the love that does what's best for the other person, no strings attached. This is the love that God has for us. Unconditional, sacrificial. It does what's best for the other person. Divine love. It's a love that is not found in human nature. It surpasses all love. And then joy is the result of holiness. Sin causes sadness, not joy. And then there's peace. Peace speaks of peace with God through salvation and the peace of God from salvation. The world cannot give this peace. That's why the world is in such a mess. That's why the world is in, is in search of peace, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Only Jesus can give this kind of peace that passes all understanding. You see, without experiencing peace with God, you won't experience the peace of God because it comes through God and only God. Secondly, you see the outward fruit mentioned here. Gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Gentleness is also a word for meekness. These, are action, these, these, action words are, these actions are toward others that result from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These actions can't be reproduced in the flesh because they're contrary to the flesh. I'm not naturally gentle or, or, or have self-control or goodness. The, only the Spirit can bring those to me. They're, re, they're reproduced. They're, they're not reproduced in the flesh. They can, they're only contrary to the flesh. Gentleness is sometimes spoken of as kindness. It's behavior that's thoughtful and considerate of others. Goodness is goodness and righteousness according to God's standard and not man's. Self-control is not weakness. It's power that's, that's, that's controlled. It involves humility and submissiveness. It's obvious in the control of one's temper and appetites. Third is the upward fruit, which is faith. Faith is belief in God. Belief in God. It's belief in God's word. It's an attitude that involves respect and reverence for God. And then Paul says in verse 23, against these things there is no law. You see, in contrast to the works of the flesh, there are no laws against the fruits of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are condemned by the law. Paul is speaking of the Mosaic law, of course, because today many of men's laws oppose spiritual behavior, such as faith. And besides, besides not ruling against these fruits, no law can reproduce, or I'm sorry, no law can produce these fruits of the Spirit. There's no law that can produce these fruits of the Spirit. And if one has these fruits of the Spirit, he doesn't need a law to govern his behavior. You see, the law was given to govern man's behavior, but the law couldn't give them the power to, to, to behave according to the law. But you see, when you're born again and these, the, the, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, he, he guides you and he enables you to, to live that godly behavior. So you don't need the law. You have that, the, the power to live a godly life because of the Spirit that dwells in you. So the fruits of the Spirit have no part with the law. Verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. A believer in Christ acts different from the world. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. 
But there are professing Christians, unfortunately, who don't act any different than the world. And you know what? That makes their profession of salvation questionable. One man said, my faith must drastically change my behavior if it's going to change my destiny. And remember Paul said, you know, those who practice these things, this list of sins, he said, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, it, it, there must be a drastic change in behavior because that's what it does. That's what being born again does to one. It changes their behavior. The old life is gone. The whole, a new life begins. The gospel brings a new power to a person's life to overcome the wickedness and immorality of the flesh, the old life. Verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. To live in the Spirit is to be saved. And this verse simply says that if you are a Christian, live like one. Live like one. The time that we live in isn't helping people think that, that, think that way. But it seems to be encouraged believers to live as much like the world as possible. And that's why, you know, people walk by churches every Sunday. Because they will tell you, oh, I knew a Christian. And they weren't, they, they didn't live any different than I did. They did the same things that I did. Why would I want to go to church? Why would I want their God? They didn't see a difference. People are looking for a difference, a real difference. Something that is real, something that is solid. And Jesus Christ is the solid ground. He's the rock that we stand on. So again, the, the time that we live in is not helping people think that way, of walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit. Look at verse 26 now. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another this kind of, of this kind of a fellowship follow up here on several of the fruits of the spirit is what paul's listing now it's just basically a, a fellowship a, um, a follow-up on several of the fruits of the spirit and notice what he says in verse 26 again let us not become conceited pride Paul's, pride is condemned here and this verse warns the believers about behavior that's all too common among Christians and, it's promo and, is, and is promoted by the world. Pride. Pride wants attention. And what's there a lot of being promoted today? Pride. Pride night. Pride parades. Pride this. Pride that. Pride this. It's amazing how God is... God's word is so amazing. You know, of the seven things that God hates, pride, pride is at the top of the list. Pride. And all these people are talking about pride, and if they only knew, ain't nothing to be proud about. God hates pride. You know why? Because it keeps people from wanting to know him. It keeps them from having a relationship with God who sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. This verse warns the believers about behavior that's all too common even among Christians and promoted by the world. Pride wants attention. It wants the praise of men, which is empty and vain. And many people determine their behavior just to receive the praise of men. 
Believers should be seeking the praise, uh, seeking the praise of God. And then he moves on there in verse 21, provoking one another. That means to irritate. Pride causes strife. Envying one another is a work of the flesh. Those who seek the empty praise of the world will be likely to envy others who are praised by men. So in closing, we are not commanded to produce the fruit. We can't produce the fruit. That fruit that we see in verses 22 to 23, that's godly fruit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. We can't produce that fruit, and we're not commanded to produce the fruit. We are commanded to bear the fruit. In other words, to show the fruit that others can see it. And we must remember that, that this fruit is produced to be eaten, not admired or put on display. When you grow a fruit tree, do you just say, hey, people, look at this beautiful fruit, and do you put it on display? No, you eat it. You eat it. And this fruit that we are to put on display as a work of the Holy Spirit, because people are hungry in the world today. People around us are starving they're starving for the love and the joy and the peace of the Spirit and all the other fruits of the Spirit. And when they see them in our lives, they know that we have something that they don't. We don't bear fruit for our own enjoyment. We bear fruit that others might be fed and helped and that Jesus might be glorified. So what it all boils down to is this. The outward walk must match the inner standard. What we say must be seen in the way that we live. That's what Paul is teaching us here. The walk must match the inward, the inner standard. Father, once again, we thank you for this powerful passage, Lord. And Father, let us not go out of here saying, oh, that was a, a neat passage of Scripture, and, and boy, I liked it, but all right, Lord, I need to get to work. I need to walk in the Spirit, and I need to do whatever it takes. I need to spend time in the Word. I need to pray. I need to spend time in fellowship with my brothers and sisters, those who will encourage me, those who will pray with me, those who will help me when I'm in need, when I'm burdened, those who will help me to stand when I feel like falling. So again, but, but again, that fruit of the Spirit belongs to those who are born again. If you're here this morning and you're not born again, and, and the Holy Spirit has, has brought conviction to your heart and you recognize, I need Christ. I want Christ. I want to be born again. As we're praying, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, lift up your hand and, and, and put it back down again. Anybody at all. anybody at all and for those that might be watching at home if, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior I'm going to say this prayer out loud and you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart dear Jesus please forgive me Lord for all of my sins I confess to you I am a sinner I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you 
all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.